if there are no leaders who look like you, and yet you don't find a way to make it to leadership, then there will never be leaders who look like us, especially being somebody who looks different than everybody else in most of the rooms I've ever been in. It's really important to me that I have the ability to, to, to say, you know what, I can be the first person in this room and I can show the way to other people. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're speaking with Deb Liu, the vice president of Facebook Marketplace. Marketplace has been one of the company's top strategic bets in recent years. And if you've ever used Facebook to buy and sell your furniture, just like I did when I moved to San Francisco, her team built that product. She also co-founded Women in Product, which has more than 20,000 members in 27 countries, and also currently serves as a board member at Intuit. Previously, she was at PayPal, eBay, and the Boston Consulting Group. In this episode, we speak with Deb about growing up as one of the few Asian Americans in South Carolina, choosing when to break expectations to advance in your career, and why what got you to where you are won't take you to where you want to go. Right before we get into the podcast, just had one quick update. As of last week, Deb was actually announced as a new CEO of Ancestry.com. After almost 12 years at Facebook, she'll be taking over this role and we can't be more excited for her. Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. A question that Jay and I have been teeing off all these episodes with is asking our guests what their favorite food was growing up, their favorite dish that their family made, or maybe a restaurant that was really meaningful to them. What was that for you? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this um, and there's something my parents used to make. And, you know, we lived in a small town in the deep South. So in South Carolina, and there were like maybe a few thousand people in our town. And it was kind of um, maybe 20, 30 miles away from Charleston. And I just remember we never had Asian food. Like we, you know, there were a few Chinese restaurants. I worked in a Chinese restaurant growing up a little bit, but you know, there was just no place to buy Asian food. And so my parents, my mom used to make these bao, steam buns and she put chicken meat in it or pork meat in it. And then she would steam them. And, I, and the reason this, you know, as I was thinking about my food memory was that I used to bring this to school and I used to get teased for it so badly because people are like, you're eating raw bread because, you know, in America, you bake the bread, it's brown, but they've never had steamed buns. It's not a thing here. And so you're eating a white bread with like meat inside. And everyone's like, why are you eating raw bread? But it also reminded me of how important that was as a part of my childhood that, you know, it was something that my, we had to make by hand. We didn't have like, you know, grocery stores or now down the street, you can buy this. And it was something really special to me. It was special because, you know, something my grandmother had made. And so it reminded me that even being in a small town that you could bring your food traditions with you. And to this day, you know, I still make steamed breads with my kids sometimes, and it's way more work than going down to the 99 Ranch, I have to say. However, I do think that it's a reminder that, you know, making something by hand in that kind of special memory, even though it's teased for it, reminded me of where I came from and where my family is from. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that upbringing in South Carolina. That is not something that is necessarily common coming from an Asian background growing up in a place like that. And I'm curious also how 
and when you got to the deeper appreciation for this food and for this culture? Was that when you were a kid as well? Or did that kind of come as you grew up? I was actually born in New York, um, in Queens, New York. So if you've ever seen uh, Coming to America, that's where he went. And Queens was a very multi-ethnic place. Like the, lots of immigrants from all over the world. My parents had a house there. My aunt and uncle lived like the next street. We had relatives everywhere. And, you know, when I was six, my dad decided we we're going to move to South Carolina. And I didn't really understand why. And I was so resentful for so many years as to why. And it turns out it was because he was discriminated against at work and they would not honor his engineering title. So he, they kept him on the technician band. They basically felt like, you know, he was never, he was never going to be recognized as an engineer. And so he applied to the U.S. government. There's much less discrimination because government actually has everything kind of locked in and how they set like titles and compensation. And he found a job and they, they placed him in South Carolina, a state we had never been to and knew nothing about. And I just remember us going to this strange place where there were no Asian people. I actually looked it up recently and there was, you know, at the time when I was growing up, it was less than 1% Asian. And so I grew up in a town where I was, for many people, the first Asian person they'd ever seen. And it was bewildering for me. Like growing up in a place where people come up to you in the street and say, go back to where you came from. And you're like, what do you mean? Or people asking you, what are you? Constantly. And, you know, playing that game, like the what are you game. You know, it's like, and where are you from? And I'm like, New York. They're like, no, the really, words. where are you from? Yeah, where are you <laughs> where really you from? <laughs> where are you really from? And I'm like, New York. They're like, where were you born? I'm like, New York. And and I knew what they wanted me to say. And I just refused to say it because I just felt like, you, you know, constantly being told you're a foreigner and wearing it every single day of your life. It just wears on you. I grew up being the different person, right? Like the person who was different than everybody else. And I just felt it every day and people reminded me, teased me. And it was really hard. And I think it, it really kind of changed the way I look at the world because you feel like the other because people point out you're the other all the time. And you kind of had to decide like, what am I gonna do with this? My parents would just say, ignore it. But it's so hard to ignore when it's being thrown in your face every day when you're at school, you know, the food you eat in the lunchroom, everywhere you go, people on the streets, people used to like, they egged our house, they threw rocks at us, they would call and make these prank calls at our house. And it's, it's just a, you know, it was so like, I just grew up this way. And I just thought this is how people reacted. And it's so weird when I tell my kids these stories, because we live in California, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. And they're just like, why would people treat other people this way? And I thought, I don't know, actually. I don't know if it was ignorance. I don't know if it was just being the other. Growing up that way, I think it really shaped my Asian identity. The part of me that said, I'm proud to be who I am, but yet there are days where I just like, that can't be the only thing I am. When do you feel like you truly became really comfortable in your own skin? Because I'm sure going through all this, I'm sure that instilled a pretty strong need to blend in and assimilate and do anything to curtail these kinds of attacks against you. They were just so unwarranted. What was that point for you when you finally felt like I can totally embrace who I am and feel comfortable being who I am? You know, I think people react to this kind of thing in very different ways. For me, though, I was actually very proud of who I was. And, you know, my parents actually took, um, we were not that well off, but my parents actually every few years took us back to Hong Kong to spend time with our family. They took us different places in the world. And so, I mean, and plane tickets were really expensive. And so they, it would take them years to save up enough money for us to fly to see my relatives in different parts of the world. And, and I realized that I could see a totally different world that none of these people that I lived with could ever see, a place where I fit in. Um, although they did make fun of my American accent and Cantonese, I think it was incredible to see like a world where you said, wow, you know, I'm not the different person. 
And I realized that that helped me, even though, you know, it was really hard. It reminded me that I could see a world that maybe they couldn't see and that it was okay. And I kept reminding myself that I should be proud to be an Asian American because I had, you know, all of the best of being an American and all the best of being Asian American as well. And I could have a heritage that I was really proud of and I knew about. And so I always reminded myself of that. And that helps me ground, that helps ground me for so long. It's something that going back home for me to India is something that I, I feel similar as well. Like everybody kind of looks like me. I can fit in a little bit more. I, I don't speak the language. And so sometimes people make fun of me even more over there because I can't speak Hindi. Uh, or I don't know if that, that necessarily happened with you. Yeah, I, I speak Cantonese and I also learn Mandarin. And yeah. so it's my kids make fun of my accent in Mandarin because they're like, you speak with a Cantonese and English accent at the same time. <laughs> but they've been going to Chinese school since they were two, you know, because we live in a place where there's a Chinese school down the street. Like It's really, really different. And I do think that because identity is so personal and yet it's so universal, people want to identify. People want to have like a feeling that you belong. And I think it's that belonging that everyone is seeking. And, you know, not having that belonging is what alienates people. And so for me, I found belonging and knowing that there are people who are like me. There are people, there are other Asian Americans, you know, maybe not in my town. I had some friends, a few friends who were Asian American, but again, we lived in a very small town. And so I think it helped me kind of get through to know that there is a place for me. And so I do think that it helped me kind of find my identity and belonging, even if it was not, you know, with people exactly like me who had similar background. How did, how did this background then help educate how you would speak to your children about the types of environments that they're growing up in? You mentioned that it was very different than the environment that you grew up in, but how did these lessons that you were learning growing up, visiting back at home, getting this sense of identity stronger for yourself, how did that end up then being shown to your children? What's interesting is I married someone, David, he actually grew up in North Carolina. His family is from Taiwan and he was born in America and he had a completely different experience than me. He grew up in a town in our, you know, Research Triangle Park. His parents, you know, his parents worked near NC State and, you know, his dad worked for the government like my dad, but it was a completely different environment because they had, you know, students from all over the world come to UNC, Duke, you know, NC State. And so he grew up in a very multi-ethnic environment and his, he was very proud of his heritage and he never experienced the things I experienced. And you know, when we talk about these experiences to our kids, they're just very confused because like, how can you live in neighboring states and have completely different experiences? And he's very proud of his heritage. And we talk a lot about to our kids about what it's like. And for them, they go to a school where it's 30 to 50% Asian. They go to a Chinese school that's almost 100% Asian and after school. And so for them, it's really bewildering that when we tell them these stories, because it's like telling stories about a place that they've never been, they can't understand. And so it is really hard for them to identify with it because they're not in the minority in a lot of their school environments. Most of their friends, the church we go to is we, we go to kind of a multi-ethnic church. And so for them, it's just second nature. And that's what I want for them in a lot of ways. I want them to not have people focus on their race as the only thing about them. I want them to kind of people appreciate them for their whole person, not just what they look like on the outside. I love that last point you just made about appreciating someone as a whole person versus just their external immutable facets. That's a lot of our motivation behind the name of this podcast, actually. You know, hearing about your children's upbringing in a super multicultural, multi-everything environment, that seems like a very stark juxtaposition to a lot of the ways in which you grew up. And I'm sure for them going through this experience and 
having this narrative around who they are as people is also different from that internal talk track that you had growing up. And in a lot of your talks and some of your writing, you mentioned that on this topic of an internal talk track, uh, imposter syndrome is actually something that you've really actively worked to overcome and is a, a really core part of how you speak to yourself. You know, it's really influenced by that. So I'd be curious to hear what that talk track looked like for you, especially through the lens of imposter syndrome when you were younger and how has that changed and what is that now? Well, I think one of the things that I, I think a lot about is, you know, you look for role models that are like you, right? You look for who is someone successful and growing in a place where you just didn't know anybody that looked like you. I just really didn't know what that, what success could look like. And I think that, you know, imposter syndrome is like, is, is the inner voice telling us that we're not good enough, that we're not, you know, smart enough. We, someone's going to find us out. And it, I think it's very dangerous. And so I've chosen to actually change that talk track. I've chosen to say, you know what, I'm not going to be the expert, but I'm going to be the best in this room at learning. I'm going to learn faster than other people because I can't be the expert in everything. I can't even be an expert in most things. And so, you know, instead of actually telling yourself you're not good enough, if you say, I'm going to have a learning mindset in every environment that I'm going to be in. And that is something which I think, you know, especially being somebody who looks different than everybody else in most of the rooms I've ever been in, it's really important to me that I have the ability to, to, to say, you know what, it's okay that no one looks like me. It's okay that people don't sound like me. I can be the first person in this room and I can show the way to other people because otherwise you can let that crush you. And instead of letting that crush you and letting that be your Achilles heel, what if you allowed that to be, you know, it's like the stumbling block versus the stepping stone. Imposter syndrome can be your stumbling block. You can just basically allow it to be the thing that keeps you from being successful. Or that same rock can be a stepping stone towards where you want to go. And so I've chosen to say, you know what, I don't know everything, but I'm going to be better at learning it. And I'm going to adapt information and I'm going to move faster than anybody else. And that that's what my superpower is going to be. And, you know, it's actually served me well over the years. This, this reminds me of another lecture that we'll be putting in the show notes, which is one of the, one of the speeches you made in one of your woman in product conversations. And one of the things you said there, the difference between perceiving things as a stumbling block versus a stepping stone, you mentioned in the woman in product context that people need to conform in the system of oppression to be able to beat the system of oppression. The way I think about it is this way, which is if there are no leaders who look like you, and yet you don't find a way to make it to leadership, then there will never be leaders who look like us. And so, you know, I remember once I, I wrote this note about, and, and I shared it about, you know, the lack of Asian American leadership and how I've chosen to conform to certain things that people expected me. And someone wrote me back who I really trust and I really care about. And they, they, their feedback was, you know, the smacks of assimilation. And I sat on that comment for a long time and I debated whether to post that note. It ended up getting published in courts, if you want to read it. It's about finding my voice as an Asian American leader. But the thing that I, I sat on that quote because she said the one thing to an Asian American that is literally our kryptonite, right? Which is, you're, an, you're just assimilate. You're just trying to be, you're trying to be someone you're not. And then I wrote something back to her. And I said, thank you for your feedback. I mean, she gave me incredible notes on that, that note and it actually helped me a ton. And I said, but I choose not to think about it as assimilation. I choose to think about it as adaptation because assimilation is like becoming someone else. Adaptation is choosing what you change to be a part of something that you believe in. 
And those are different things. Assimilation is like giving up yourself. And I'm, trying, I'm not choosing to give up myself. I am choosing to do something which will help benefit my entire community. And so, you know, yeah, like I, I grew up in a collective society, right? Like I, my parents are, are basically the kinds of things that they taught me was keep your head down, work really hard, you know, the, the typical things like study hard and do well in school, don't raise your hand and speak up too much. That's not what the style of leadership in America looks like. That's not when people look at that, they're like, that's a leader. What they look for is someone who's willing to speak the hard things, to speak up and to tell the truth to power, to, to like influence. And it was an anathema to everything I learned growing up. And it took me a long time to kind of unprogram from the thing that I learned growing up to the thing that has helped me be successful in the workplace. And if that's assimilation, I said, look, I don't, try, I don't treat it as that because I still have the lessons my parents taught me. I still have the things that I care about from that, but I choose to adapt to what the expectations are as well. And we can change the system if more people look you know, if we have diverse leaders from across different places, that gives us more opportunity to see leadership look different ways. But if no one ever makes it to leadership, if no one is ever influencing that looks different than who's already there, how are we ever going to change things? That's such a great point, Deb. It really touches on this idea of you can't be what you can't see. And I think it also touches on, it's, it's kind of this seeming dichotomy between play the game and beat the game versus exit the game and build your own rules, build your own game. And in my mind, it always felt like very like mutually exclusive ways to go about this issue you're talking about, right? Of getting more Asian American representation and leadership and having that visibility. But what I'm hearing from what you're saying is almost a potential middle ground in that, where you're playing within the rules of the game, but you're also trying to recraft the rules of the game and build your own court. I'm not sure if these analogies are really making sense here, but how do you how do you think about that? This idea of playing by the game and beating the game versus remaking the game once you're up on top. Well, I'll, I'll use this study that came out in the Harvard Business Review where they said this is about women and men, but I think it's it's applicable to Asian Americans as well. It's you know men are seen as leaders if they're competent, and women are seen as leaders when they're competent and warm. And they looked at the study and, and so they said, women just have this extra requirement of having to be warm. Now, there are a certain number of women who are born warm and that's incredible for them and they have a leg up. I was not one of those women. I was not a particular warm person. I, and I had to decide like, what do I do with this information? And I knew that the fact that I wasn't warm was a barrier between relationships between me and other people that I struggled to have like, you know, trusting relationships with people at work because I just was more transactional. And I would get this feedback over and over. I just could not figure it out. I'm like, this is really unfair. And when I saw the study, I was like, this is exactly the problem. Was people expected me to be warm. They don't expect men to be warm. Apparently this is not a thing. And I kind of had to decide like, do I, do I adapt to this or not? It took me a long time to really understand that is it fair? Absolutely not. Is it fair that women have this extra requirement? No. However, I could choose to just say, you know what? I'm just not going to do it. Or I can choose to understand what is behind it, which is, you know, people just have expectations of women that they have to act a certain way. And every time you break expectations, there's a cost. And you have to choose when you're going to break those expectations. And as an Asian woman, doubly, you're expected to be warm and sweet and graceful and all these things. And, and I remember my mom told me once, she, you know, she's like, I pray that you and your sister will be, this, this the word in Mandarin is one role which is it's kind of a gracious, graceful kind of demure woman. 
I was like, mom, you're not at all literal, <laughs> at all. Like she's like very powerful. I mean, she came to America with nothing by herself, you know? And, and she like built a life here without her family and didn't go home for many, many years because she couldn't afford it. And, you know, I said, you moved with my dad to a town where you knew nobody and you basically like started a new life. And, you know, what do you mean? Like she, at one point we didn't have money. She like drove a school bus. She drove our school bus so that, you know, we could make enough money. She worked in a, a fast food restaurant. This is somebody who's like, you know, she's, she has a college education and she's like, look, that's what you needed. So I'm like, you're one of the most fierce women I know. Why would you want that of me? And she said, because that's what women are expected to be. And it really baffled me because you know, my grandmother's an incredible woman who also is not. And so I, I think a lot about that. And I think about how even expectations among my own mother and my grandmother, who neither of, are two of the most fierce women I know, are to be a demure Asian woman. And I was like, that's crazy. And so I do understand that though, is that we have these expectations in the back of our heads and we judge other people based on them and people are judging us based on them. I wish we could break those expectations. I wish we did not have this extra requirement. But in choosing to not adapt to it, I can choose not to be seen as a leader or I can choose to adapt to it. And I've chosen to adapt to it. I've chosen to understand what people are looking for. I don't fake it. Someone asked me, do you feel like you're wearing a mask all the time? And I'm like, no, not at all. I've actually learned what warmth really is and what people are looking for. And so I think there's a huge difference between those two things. And to that point, a lot of these stereotypes around who someone should be, especially as an Asian American woman, that carries over into the workplace as well. Unfortunately, the way people are, it's just like their brains are almost pre-wired to absorb some of these stereotypes that they've been brought up with in, in popular culture. And it's, it's almost like, to your point, a double bind where if you are conforming to expectations and being that demure woman in the background who's behind the scenes and, you know, putting your head down and working hard, that's not the definition of leadership that is widely accepted. But on the other hand, if you go out there and you express your leadership style in a way that conforms to America's narrative of what leadership is, I can imagine that there could also be some blowback from that as well. And you, you made a really interesting point of you choose when you break those expectations strategically. Could you tell us a bit about how you go through that decision-making process of when you should step out of line and out of people's expectations to be yourself and when you choose to hold back a bit? Yeah, I think that the hard part about this is, you know, every time you break an expectation, there's a cost. I think you're right about the double bind. I think a lot of women and minorities in this country face like these, these unspoken expectations and you kind of have to decide. But the problem is if you don't decide, it's decided for you. If you don't choose, you're choosing, you're just choosing the, the defaults. So one, one thing I knew, for example, was being a mom, as you can tell, I have lots of kids in the house. One of the things that's really important is you, you read about maternal bias. It's a huge issue, right? That people think that mothers are less competent. They're less likely to get hired. They're actually, if they're hired, offer less money because people think that as a mom, you can't be a great mom and a great worker at the same time. And when I joined Facebook, the weird part was, you know, we friended everybody after meetings, right? So. And I had to decide, like, was I going to post about my kids anymore? And I decided that, you know, the thing that was going to be different was that I am going to lean into who I was, which was, this is an important part of me. And if people judge me negatively for it, that's okay. But a really weird thing happened, which was I used to post like what my kids said in this hashtag mommy school. And then I eventually created a comic strip called mommy school, which is actually funny things my kids said over the years. 
and you know, people actually would come up to me in meetings and they say, they would meet me for the first time. Like, by the way, I saw your post. It was incredible. I love your mommy school stuff. And these are people without kids. And I thought that they would actually judge me super negatively, but actually they, it was actually a cultural touchstone that they could relate to me. And they used it as a, as a way of opening the door to actually have a relationship with me. And so in some ways I turned the choice on its head where I, you know, I thought that, well, I'm going to choose to do this. I know there's a cost, but actually it's been a huge benefit because it became a thing that people talk to me about all the time. Like when I have kids, I'm going to definitely put that into use. Oh, I can't wait to, you know, read this with my, my husband. And, and I thought that that was really incredible. And so sometimes it's not a zero sum game. Like you think it is that there's just a cost for a choice that sometimes things work out very differently where actually choosing something I knew could be really damaging to my career actually turned out to be really beneficial. I think one thing that's been interesting to hear you speak about, Deb, is this idea of like internal narratives. One thing that I wanted to follow up on was the background that your mom had coming here as like on her own and being someone who was like driving a bus to be able to make things kind of work. I'm, I'm misinterpreting Oh, so that. my dad was, my dad was here too. It's just, you know, was here and, too. but my dad also came with nothing yeah, by himself they, to America and, yeah. you know, they met each other here and they had to do a lot of things to make ends meet, to, to pay the mortgage and a lot of things that I, you could never have imagined, you know? How has that sunk in for you being someone who comes from like a second generation, like second generation immigrant. And then you get to a point, especially for yourself, where you're working at one of the largest companies in the world and you reflect back on your childhood. And that wasn't really even close to what that upbringing was like. Have you, has there been any like level of disorientation between what it was like as a kid and speaking to your parents about some of the challenges that they had to go through to make ends meet? And then now kind of like how you've ended up just not even that long from that time period. Yeah. I mean, I hear a lot of stories about when they first came to America and how, you know, my dad said he used to eat rice with milk because he, there was just not enough money for meat or food. Right. And you think about that and how far away from that we are today. Like we live in a house in Silicon Valley and we have such opportunity. And in so many different ways, I feel like the, the past has, has reminded me of how you are just one generation away. Right. And so I remember when I first got my, I got my first job, my first full-time job, I worked at Boston Consulting Group as a consultant and I showed my dad my first paycheck. And he's like, you make more money today as a new college grad than I make today. And he was about to retire. And he said, he was so proud of me because, you know, it was in so many ways, all the sacrifices they made. So I could go to a you know, great university that, you know, I could grow up, like they bought a house in a town that they thought where they had good schools. And, you know, there were months where they weren't sure they would make the mortgage. And you know, they were like, this makes us really proud. And, and, you know, as you know, Asian parents never say that. So I should enjoy it while I can. And when he was, he was very sick and he was passing away, I reminded him of that, right. Of that, that moment when he's like, I was really proud because, you know, you could, that your first paycheck was more than I was making and I was about to retire. And I just remember that and how touching that was. And, and I think that that's something which as an immigrant, all your sacrifices that your parents made to bring, to give you a life that you could never have had somewhere else reminds you of how different your life could be. And we were incredibly fortunate. And in so many ways, my parents lived a very happy life, but they lived a very simple life in a small town in the South. And I, I realized that there was something really simple about that. And when my father got sick, you know, I was able to put him in a private nursing like hospice. And he said, I, I just, he held my hand and he said, thank you. And that was the last thing he ever said. 
to me. And I just remember thinking like, you know, I can do this because I can afford it. This is something they could never have afforded. This is something that they could never have done. And so I do think that, you know, that they understand that their sacrifice is paid off. And even to this day, my husband and I are extremely frugal. We want our kids to kind of have the immigrant life, right? They, they ask why we drive really old cars and, and things like that. And, and for us, it's, it's a reminder that you can't, to know what sacrifices that your ancestors had given you to give you the life that you have is something that we hope they have some type of appreciation for. Oh, that's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. My, my dad was a cab driver when he first came from India to the Bay Area. And now whenever I sit in an Uber or I get into a cab and I see an, an Indian dad or an Indian father, or like I, I, I always try to have a conversation with him because I feel like I'm talking to like who my dad would have been in the past. So it, it is pretty inspiring to hear that you've reflected on this and you're, and you're trying to kind of share that with your children as well. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And Deb, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch upon all your amazing professional accomplishments thus far. You've had an amazing career. And, and moreover, on this point you just made around supporting your family and honoring past sacrifices, do you feel like in any way that has impacted your leadership style as well and how you show up for your team and how you show up professionally? You know, I think often there's kind of this sense of the individual leader, like in America, we kind of honor the like singular, you know, it's like this amazing CEO or this amazing founder or this amazing athlete. But what we don't see is that to make any individual successful, it actually takes lots and lots of people and a huge team. And it's not about one person's accomplishments. And that is something I wish we talked more about what it takes to be successful. And often like success is not done individually. It's actually done with groups of people working long and hard over a long period of time to make things happen. But I think we celebrate too much the kind of hero CEO or the hero kind of individual. And I think we forget that so much of what gets accomplished is actually a partnership amongst lots of people who care about a problem over a long period of time because you had support, because you had a supportive partner, because your family is understanding. Like so many of what your individual success is, is really collective success over so many generations. Like my parents are a huge part of that, but also like everyone around me. And so I do think that one of the things that we do too much is like celebrate one person to the, at the expense of everyone who makes things happen in our society. One thing that you mentioned is what, you know, what, what got you here won't get you there. I'd, I'd love if you could elaborate on that point a little bit. And maybe as like we kind of wrap up here, we'd love to kind of hear if we can loop this in somehow, some of the advice that you would have maybe given to the younger Deb or someone who's just starting their career to even get them there. <laughs> it's like, how do you, how do you get them there? And then, and then maybe kind of talk about to get you wherever else you want to go. Well, first you had asked me, I always tell people, whatever got you here probably isn't going to get you to where you want to go because you know, it's all about the learning mindset, right? If you start with, you know, I'm going to do this thing. Well, the thing is you're going to hit stumbling blocks in your career. And the question is, how do you look at those things? Are you, are they just going to be frustrations or are you going to look within yourself and say, Hey, how am I going to get around this rock? How am I going to use this as a way to move forward? And I think I see a lot of times, but, you know, for example, you can almost always brute force a project. If you worked hard enough, you did as many hours as you could, you were just like relentless. You could probably brute force it. 
but you can't keep doing that for the rest of your life. That's not possible. And I think that it's one of those things where are you building for short-term impact? Are you building capacity and the potential energy? Are you building relationships that are short-term and transactional? Are you building relationships that will last that when you come calling and you need, you need something? That, you know, and so I think that we often have this idea about the short-term thing. And I tell people like, you know, you can have a very short-term mindset, get what you want, get the promotion, get the bonus, whatever it is, deliver the product. But ask yourself what the future you wants you to do today. And ask yourself what is important in five years and whether what you're doing today is what you wish you had done, the future you would want you to do. And that really changes people's perspectives, not just the future you at the end of your life. I think for people, it's just too far away, but actually saying two years from now, like what decision do you wish you had made today? Five years from now, what decision do you wish you had made today? And we look about, upon that with regret. And so I often think that we kind of get to a place where we kind of are in our own heads and we, we struggle to make decisions or we struggle with what we're choosing to do. And that's a way to get out of it. To your other question, you had asked about, you know, advice I would give like my, myself starting out. The person who has a learning mindset, who's, who's going to be willing to grow, who's willing to take feedback is always going to be further along than the person who starts as the expert. You know, you have this, if you have a fixed mindset, you are just where you are. You're as good as you're ever going to be. But somebody who is, you know, willing to grow, willing to say, hey, I'm willing to adapt. I'm willing to learn. That person will over time exceed the person who starts out smarter or more successful with more expertise because you're willing to actually give yourself an opportunity to continue to evolve. And so, you know, keeping that learning mindset will all the way through your life will always yield more than if you just say, hey, here's who I am. I'm not willing to change. And this idea of adaptability and personal transformation is, is such a strong undercurrent in your story, Deb, from coming from a small town in South Carolina to taking the helm at a huge public tech company. That journey of transformation, the ways that you've had to adapt and remake certain parts of yourself to suit your environment, but also remake some of the roles, I think is so powerful. So thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting with us. Really appreciate it, Deb. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm -hmm.